1: This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hemrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through 2 Corinthians.
0: Real love is
2: calling, opens up your eyes, mercy is waiting for you with every sunrise. Satan's cunning in the garden when he slanders God to man is to convince eve and she believed it that god does not have your best interest at heart you know he wants to ruin your fun and uh you know all your friends are out partying and you're just a christian who stays at home on friday nights you're a miserable loser you know that's what he wants you to think he wants you to think that god is just a bunch of rules and god's a killjoy and why everybody else is out having fun you're getting robbed of all the fun no you're not
1: Pastor Gary reveals the enemy's key deception today. The enemy would have us think that God is a killjoy, robbing us of all our fun, when really it is God who is robbing us of the pain of bad decisions. God cautions you away from sinful behavior that leads to destruction. God guides you into righteousness and the joy that comes from living a life in step with Him. The enemy wants you to believe you're missing out, but all his cunning is undone with one simple phrase, I have learned to be content. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection, subscribe to the podcast, or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 10 with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection.
2: We have to kind of try to separate our typical Western weddings from a Jewish Eastern wedding in that for the Jews, there was an exchanging of vows... And then a week later, they would physically consummate the wedding. And so there was this period of espousal and then the vows. Espousal, we would say engagement, but it was a much more serious contractual thing between dads at the time. There's espousal, then there's the vows, and then there's the consummation of the wedding physically. And between the espousal or the betrothal period, the engagement period, and when they would exchange the vows, the groom would go away. And he would be exempt from military duty, uh, the Bible tells us, and he would build a home for his bride. Usually that meant an extension onto his father's house. They didn't necessarily start out with their own home. It was usually extending uh, his own father's house and building a room. And then he'd go back and he would retrieve and receive his bride And they would consummate the marriage a week after the vows. And then he would take his bride to her new home. All of this is presented in the allegory where Jesus talks about, in my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. But I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself. That where I am, there you might be also. That's all marriage language. He's talking about like a groom who goes away. When Jesus ascended back into heaven where he is presently. This is kind of the betrothal period. And Jesus is going to come again, and if you will, in a spiritual sense, he's going to consummate the relationship, and he's going to take us to be with him forever, just like a groom comes to get the bride and takes her to his home. When Jesus said all that about heaven and going away and coming back, that's marital language. Now, Paul is using marital language here in this sense. He says, I felt this jealousy, not of you, but for you, Like a father, he says to the Corinthian church, like a father over a daughter. And what he's saying to us, listen to this on dads, especially those of you with little girls still at home, that the responsibility of the daughter's virginity was on the dad to preserve her purity. To be a godly man and to set an example for his daughter and to be regularly and constantly praying for his daughter and to be protecting his daughter so that one day he could present his daughter as a virgin in marriage. And Paul is using that terminology to say in the same way, I want to present you, the Corinthian church, as this pure bride to Christ. So he says, forgive me for, for writing like this, but I'm boasting and I'm saying all these things because I'm jealous for you like a dad over over his little daughter. And I want to present you to your ultimate husband, to your groom, as this pure virgin, unspoiled. As most of you know, our daughter Lindsay got married two and a half weeks ago, and I gave her away and then walked around and then did the ceremony and um, cried like a middle school girl. (laughs) I... I cried like a middle school girl, and uh, and no offense to the middle school girls in the crowd. but, um, And I said in the ceremony, and for the benefit of everybody else, I'll, I'll say this, that when I first started doing weddings, when I first started in the ministry uh, 25 years ago, the wedding vows were a little different. Now, I still use the traditional wedding vows, and I say to couples, you can... Add different things you want to say to each other. It's so cute. <laughs> you can add little things you want to say to each other, but you're not going to change the vows. I'm going to read the vows. You're going to recite the vows. You can add some other stuff later that you want to say to each other. But one of the ways that the vows have gotten, or, or not the vows themselves have gotten changed, but the part leading up to the vows is 25 years ago when I first started doing weddings, it was universal, universal that when a pastor asked the dad, when the dad brought his daughter down the aisle and a pastor said, who gives this woman to be married to this man? 25 years ago, the answer was always the same. I do. It was. The dad said, I do. Somewhere along the line, I don't remember when, 10 or 15 years ago, I started noticing in ceremonies that a dad would say her mother and I do. Now I get why that is said. And I even said her mother and I do when I was asked, so my father-in-law was the one who asked the question when I brought Lindsay down, he asked me that. And I answered her mother and I do too. And then I explained later in the ceremony why I answered it that way, but what the true answer is. I said, I answered her mother and I do because I wanted to honor my wife, Terry, who's done a wonderful job as a mom and obviously a huge part of are raising our daughter. And so to my wife's credit, I don't want to leave her out. So I said her mother and I do. And I know that's the reason why that's the way it became in ceremonies. Because there's a dad who brings his daughter up and then doesn't want to feel like he's leaving his wife out. I get that. But let me tell you the original answer behind that question was I do because the question was directed to the dad. Do you, as the spiritual leader of your home, do you relinquish your daughter into the arms of this other man here? Because you are now going to hand off spiritual responsibility and everything else that goes with it. The physical protection as well. And the material provision. Everything now, are you prepared as dad... To relinquish your role now to this new man who's gonna become the spiritual leader of this new home. That's why the question was originally put to the dad and really still is. And so in the ceremony, I explained all that and then I turned to Andrew and I said, And who gives us one to be married to this man? I do. And I wanted it to be heard that I do. But Paul is speaking like this with the passion of a dad. And it is a good reminder for us as fathers of daughters that we have this responsibility. Now, I know we can't be with our kids 24-7, and they get older, and they can make some choices, and I know, and sometimes regrettable choices. But to the degree that it is on us to be good, godly men and fathers in our homes, so should we be, and praying for our daughters and loving our daughters and Telling them that they're beautiful and leading them spiritually and protecting them physically and providing for them materially. That's our responsibility as men and fathers. And Paul says here, Paul is saying with similar passion, I am so protective over you, Corinthian church, because I want to present you as this pure virgin to your groom. And he says, that's on me. So he says, forgive me for being a little foolish here and all my boasting, but this is why I'm so passionate about you. Now, he adds here, and this is is a strong warning here. He says in verse 3, but I'm afraid, but I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Okay. Now he mentions here the serpent, the serpent's cunning. He's going to talk about Satan three times. This is one reference, and then further down in verse fourteen, he uses the name Satan, and then into chapter twelve, he mentions Satan by name in verse seven. So we won't get uh, we won't get into chapter twelve tonight. But but twice here in chapter eleven, he talks about the serpent and Satan, the serpent and Satan. And here he is in verse three talking. He said, "I'm afraid. I've got some concern for you, Corinthians." That somehow you're going to be deceived about the truth and you're not going to understand the simplicity of the gospel and that's because you're going to fall prey to the deception of, of the serpent's cunning, of Satan, who wants to deceive you and rip you off. Now remember in the garden, he's referring to that scene in the garden where there Eve is and there we know later, from the text that Adam is right with her because she takes and gives of the fruit to her husband. So he had to have been there for the whole thing. So there's some passiveness on Adam's part. That's a whole other Bible study, all right? But here Eve is, and this conversation happens with the serpent in the garden. Now, the serpent in the garden is Satan. It's an interesting word in the Hebrew in Genesis chapter 3. We're introduced to the serpent in Genesis chapter 3. And the word serpent in the Hebrew is Nahash. Nahash, the root word of that Hebrew word, means copper. Or some translations say brass or brazen. Did you ever wonder why it is that Eve seems to be having this casual conversation with Satan? Like, why isn't she wigged out a little bit? You know, that the reason why she's not wigged out a little bit is because he didn't appear to her the way he is portrayed in Hollywood. He didn't come to her and like, and his head spinning, you know, (laughs) he's not doing that because that would freak somebody out, you know, and so, and so he's not like, and you know, all of this kind of nonsense and stuff. He's not coming across in this demonic sense. He's coming across in this shining sense. That's Nahash copper. He's like, he looks beautiful. He looks beautiful. Now we don't know too much. Is the serpent? It appears in Genesis that the serpent is upright, maybe walked on legs, because part of the cursing of the serpent was, "On your belly from now on, you shall you shall go." So it's kind of a mystery about you know, was this a, a full size kind of a serpent? Was he slithering in a tree? So it's, it's kind of. But nachash it means copper, so he's probably very shiny and very beautiful looking. And he speaks. And when he speaks, there are three times in the Bible that Satan speaks. Three times in the Bible. Three conversations. The first one is in Genesis 3, where he speaks to Eve. And when he speaks to Eve, he slanders God to man. Because he says to Eve, did God really say you can't eat from any of these trees? And he tries to make God look like a killjoy. The second time Satan speaks is in Job chapter 2, and in Job chapter 2, Satan slanders man to God. He slanders Job to God. He says, you know, this guy Job, the only reason why he loves you and he serves you is because you put a protection around him. You remove the protection, and you'll see his true colors. The third and the last time that Satan speaks in the Bible, he slanders, now listen, First time, he slanders God to man. Second time, he slanders man to God. The third time that Satan speaks, he slanders the God-man. In Luke chapter 4, when Satan is tempting Jesus, he slanders him, and he tempts him in that way. So part of Satan's cunning in the garden when he slanders God to man is to convince Eve, and she believed it, that God does not have your best interest at heart. You know, he wants to ruin your fun and, uh, you know, all your friends are out partying and you're just a Christian who stays at home on Friday nights, you're a miserable loser. You know, that's what he wants you to think. He wants you to think that God is just a bunch of rules and God's a killjoy and while everybody else is out having fun, you're getting robbed of all the fun. No, you're not. No, you're not. It's all part of the enemy's tactic to try to make you think like, you know, you're missing out on life. And so... He deceives Eve, she believes God is withholding from me, God is holding back, there's more for me, why was God trying to, you know, deny me all his best, which isn't true at all, but she believed all that, and so then she turns to her husband, he eats also, and sin enters the human race and corrupts humanity. Paul says, I'm concerned for you, Corinthian church, I'm concerned that you're going to believe the lies of the enemy and that you're going to be deceived into thinking that the gospel isn't true, Jesus didn't die for you, and you as sinners can't really be forgiven, and all this other kind of nonsense. He says, I'm concerned. You're going to be deceived by the serpent's cunning. And he says, and be led astray. Look at the last part of verse 3 because it goes into verse 4. And be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Now, the King James Bible it doesn't say sincere and pure devotion. It consolidates it into one word, and in the Greek it is one word, haplotes, and it just simply translates simplicity. He says here, I, I'm concerned that you might be led away from the simplicity of Christ. And he adds, For if someone comes to you, verse 4, for if someone comes to you and preaches a Jesus other than the Jesus we preached, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received or a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it easily enough. So he's concerned about that. He says, "He says, listen, I'm concerned that you're going to be led astray from the simplicity of the gospel. And then this caution, like if somebody else comes along, they're going to tell you another gospel. Don't believe it. This is a simplistic truth. Now, it isn't that it is simplistic in the sense that what a simple thing that Jesus died for us. It is simplistic in the sense that you don't have to jump through a lot of hoops to get saved. Some of you probably have thought before you became a Christian, or maybe you're not a Christian and you're here and you're contemplating some of these things, one of the things that may have hindered you accepting Christ as your Savior is because you thought to yourself, this sounds to be too simple. There's got to be more to it than this. And I run into, especially those of you with Catholic backgrounds, those of you with Catholic backgrounds who are normally guilty anyway, so you're, it's okay that you're here tonight and that you're not at Mass. It's all right. Please, I want to assure you it's okay. But I have, especially those with Catholic backgrounds, come to me and say, all it is, is really is putting faith and trust in Jesus Christ and accepting Him and what He did on the cross for me. Forgiving me of my sins. I don't have to do other things. No, you don't have to do anything. I don't have to perform or do or penance or confession. No. All you have to do is, it is by grace are you saved through faith. And this the work of God. Right? Even believing faith is a gift from God. This is a gift of God. Not of works. Lest any man should boast. So it's on faith alone. The moment we add anything else to faith alone, we've corrupted it and made it a works-oriented system. And so sometimes some people stumble at this thought, like, you mean all I have to do, this is all, this is it? Because Jesus died on the cross for me, all I have to do is respond to that and accept him as my savior, ask him to forgive me. Say, That's it. Isn't that simple? Isn't that it? That's it. That's and, and Paul says, I'm afraid you're going to be deceived about all this and you're going to be led astray from the sincere and pure devotion or the simplicity of the gospel of Christ. And he says, and then he adds, there's a caution. If anyone else comes to you and preaches a gospel, Anything else? And and he warned the church of Galatia too. In Galatians, he he said, if we or any, or even an angel should come to you and preach any other gospel than the one we've preached to you, in Galatians, he says, twice, let him be eternally condemned. Translation, let him be damned. If anyone else says anything to you about the truth of the gospel other than what you've heard, you're going to be deceived. And he says, let that person be eternally condemned, so don't believe it. Now, look, you know, this is where, and this is why from time to time, I will take time, and I get emails on this, and people think that I have ill intent. I don't have ill intent. I'm trying to separate what is truth from what are the lies. And this is why I will say things like, when Jehovah's Witnesses tell you that Jesus is the Archangel Michael, and the Bible doesn't teach that, then Jehovah's Witnesses are telling you something that isn't true. Now again, people get all worked up and they say, why would you say such a thing? Because I want you to know truth. You may not believe it, but it is my responsibility to tell it. And when Mormons come and knock on the door and say to you that Jesus is the spirit brother of Lucifer, that is not what the Bible teaches. That's a different Jesus. And that is straying from the simplicity of the gospel. And when Muslims say that Jesus is a prophet, but he's inferior to Muhammad, that just isn't what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that Jesus is the Son of God and he is superior to any and every prophet. So I don't say those things because I just want to slam Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons or Muslims. I just say it because if if we aren't hearing the truth, then you can't respond to the truth, and you won't be equipped with the truth to be able to share the truth. And so it's the truth that you will know and the truth that will set you free. Amen? Amen. 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 So that's the truth of the gospel. And so for that reason, you know, Paul says, listen, I, I don't want you to be led astray. I want you to know what the truth is. and Then he adds in verse 5, he says, But I do not think I am the least inferior to those, quote, super apostles, meaning part of the original 11. I may not be a trained speaker, so he admits it. He says, But I do have knowledge. We have made this perfectly clear to you in every way. Now, but Paul then, from this verse on, through chapter 11 and 12, is going to give us three signs of his credentials, three aspects of his credentials. Here's the reason why I'm legitimate, okay? And one of the first things he's going to say here is found between verses 7 and 15. So let me read this passage. Verse 7, he says, Was it a sin for me to lower myself in order to elevate you by preaching the gospel of God to you free of charge? I robbed other churches by receiving support from them so as to serve you. And when I was with you and needed something, I was not a burden to anyone, for the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied what I needed. I have kept myself from being a burden to you in any way and will continue to do so. As surely as the truth of Christ is in me, nobody in the regions of Achaia will stop this boasting of mine. Why? Because I do not love you? God knows I do, and I will keep on doing what I am doing, in order to cut the ground from under those who want an opportunity to be considered equal with us in the things they boast about. So that's a a slap in the face of the false prophets, basically that last part here. But in this section, one of the the points of his credentials is, he says, I have worked hard. I've worked hard. Because he wants them to know, and and, in those verses we just read, I never wanted to be a burden to you, so I never took any money from you. I never received any offerings from you, Corinthians. He says, I received my support from the offerings of other churches in Macedonia. And those offerings were brought to me to help support my ministry, but I never asked you for anything. Because I didn't want you to ever think that I was trying to get something from you. Now, even in Acts chapter 18, it tells us that when Paul first goes to Corinth, we know from Acts that he was a tent maker by trade. And it tells us in Acts 18 that when he gets to Corinth, he also makes money and supports himself through tent making. So between tent making, he leaves that part out here, but we know it from Acts 18. Between tent making and the offerings that he receives from the Macedonian churches, he didn't have to take anything from the Corinthian people. Now, the reason he's saying that is because I don't want you to think for a moment I had ulterior motives you know, the whole health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. Like, I just was coming to preach to you just so I could, you know, get some money from you and line my pockets. He said, I didn't take anything from you. I didn't want to be a burden to you. I supported myself and the offerings from other churches. So that's one of the things he says as to his credentials. In the next section, he talks, verse 13. He says, for such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, masquerading as apostles of Christ, Verse 14, and no wonder for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. There's that whole picture of Nachash, like this beautiful creature. He says it is, even though he's very evil and wicked, it, Satan, it is not surprising then if his servants, the false teachers, masquerade as servants of righteousness, their end will be what their actions deserve. And then verse 16 begins a new section, and it's really the second point of Paul's credentials. But because our time has escaped us, I don't want to get into it tonight. We'll pick it up there next week. So, oh, jump in and you'll find the cornerstones, your connection run towards your new life.
1: We're so glad you joined us for this edition of Cornerstone Connection as Pastor Gary Hamrick is teaching through the book of 2 Corinthians. If you're interested in hearing this message again or others like it, feel free to visit our website, cornerstoneconnection.cc. You can also download our mobile app so you can have these teachings with you on the go. That way you'll never miss a message from Pastor Gary's studies and you'll always have encouragement from God's Word at your fingertips. Find a link to download the app for your iPhone or Android device at our website, cornerstoneconnection.cc. Simply look under the Teachings tab. While you're there, feel free to take some time to learn about the church this radio ministry originates from, Cornerstone Chapel. We'd be excited to meet you if you're in the area. You'll find all you need to know about service times and other information on our website. Again, that's cornerstoneconnection.cc. We trust you've been blessed by today's teaching in the book of 2 Corinthians. Keep reading on your own. You'll discover many things written years ago that relate to what you're going through today. We look forward to you joining us on Cornerstone Connection.
2: They say you're a wandering soul, that you've got no place to go, but still you know. You're not alone